Well, thank you for staying on after the senator left. Uh, we're very impressed by the fact that you've got such ability to sustain yourselves. Um, this is going to be a very gentle diplomatic panel. Uh, all of us have been career diplomats and don't expect any fire coming out of any of our mouths. Um, but lots of good analysis and maybe even some thinking about policy. But I'm most impressed by the fact that these three colleagues have agreed to join today. Uh, I presume most of you know Zal Khalilzad, who, who uh, has been a friend of mine for many years and who um, was ambassador to many places. I think he was the only one ambassador to more places than Tom Pickering. But he, no. He, he was, he <laughs> Nobody's was, been more. Nobody's been to more embassies than Tom. And, and he... Um, um, and he's about as sensible a person on this region as you can get. And not the least reason for that is the fact that he's from that region. And he has a sense of the culture, the, the history, the, and the current politics because of his time there. Uh, and I think I'd like to start with that. And I'll introduce the others when we go to it. Uh, Zal, you didn't hear what was just said by Chris Murphy. Um, he gave his view, basically focused on the Iran question, talking a, a good deal about the immigration issue and the, uh, the executive order of the president. Um, but I'd like this to move beyond, I'd like us to move beyond the, the particular um, nuclear agreement to talk about how the nuclear agreement has affected every relationship and how those relationships are evolving. And maybe you could talk a little bit about the northern group of countries, the, the Syria, um, Iraq, Afghanistan, Iran network, and how you see that playing out now in this post-JCPOA era, and what you think the president should do about it. Sure. Well, Close first it. of all, are you done? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's an honor to be here. A slight corrective. I, was, I didn't have the honor of being part of the professional foreign service, so, uh, but uh, nevertheless, uh, a, a great honor to be with distinguished colleagues with whom I have worked uh, over many years. Uh, with regard to the impact of the nuclear agreement on uh, regional relations, I don't know whether the uh, uh, nuclear agreement had uh, any direct effect on regional policies uh, or relations between uh, the states of the region, although uh, several more to the south were openly against the agreement, suspicious of the agreement, suspicious of US engagement uh, with Iran. But as far as the northern tier countries are concerned, Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, and Syria, the three countries you mentioned, they were all supportive uh, of the agreement. That's sort of one big difference. Uh, uh, because even in my time as ambassador to two of those three countries, uh, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, both countries uh, were pushing very hard uh, for good relations or normal relations or better relations than existed between the United States and Iran. President Karzai in Afghanistan uh, always uh, tried to uh, 
uh, uh, offer himself as an intermediary. Uh, he had uh, good relations with President Khatami. And when I went over to Iraq, uh, the Iraqi Shia in particular uh, thought they were friends of Iran and friends of the United States. And they didn't want to be torn asunder, so to speak, uh, 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 between these two uh, countries that they wanted to have good relations with both, with different degrees, uh, some more so than others among the political parties. But, uh, uh, so therefore, I, I, I think they, these three countries, uh, the leadership of these three countries, uh, the dominant political forces in these countries, not that there weren't other forces operating, favored and endorsed publicly uh, the, the, the nuclear agreement. But as far as whether Iran changed policies towards these three countries in the aftermath of the nuclear agreement, or whether because of the negotiations uh, between us and Iran and the agreement, uh, uh, whatever you think of the agreement with, uh, on the nuclear agreement, uh, some believe that uh, uh, that would have a positive effect uh, on the regional relations. Uh, uh, and I don't think a case can be made, at least I can't make it, that the uh, agreement had that effect. Uh, uh, Iran continued essentially the, the policies that it had before and during the negotiations, uh, which was in the case of Syria, support uh, the regime. Uh, in the case of uh, Iraq, uh, support the government uh, uh, that was dominated by forces that were quite friendly and sympathetic to Iran. And in Afghanistan, and they supported, like we did, the unity government, uh, uh, and also maintained good relations with, uh, uh, with, uh, with uh, those that were closer and had a longer-term relationship with Iran, elements of the Northern Alliance, which uh, during the Taliban period they sustained and we took over after the 9-11 uh, attack uh, with Iran in help, I must say, at that time. Uh, now, some changes in the region have affected Iranian policy. Uh, uh, one, uh, that, that the Shia-Sunni divide has gotten worse uh, over time. And uh, places like Afghanistan, where uh, they stayed out of the Sunni-Shia divide, Saudi-Iranian divide, are, uh, are, are, are fearful. And some uh, believe that it's beginning to negatively affect them. Uh, they see more violence against Shia communities, although it has been there. Not to the extent that you see it in some other countries of the region, but uh, they've been worried about that. Uh, in the case of, uh, of course, uh, Iraq, there is no real uh, change. I think that the, 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 the rise of ISIS has had an impact in the sense that uh, Iran uh, has used that uh, uh, the war against ISIS to further uh, increase and perhaps institutionalize its uh, 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 increased role, particularly uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, Syria, of course, as I said, and they were pro-supportive uh, of the regime. Uh, in, 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 uh, uh, the threat from ISIS is taken very seriously by Iran. Uh, 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 in the province of Diyala, for example, in Iraq, 
And because the uh, ISIS was getting close to the Iranian border, they pushed, uh, uh, were very afraid, and now Iranian influence in the, that province is extremely high. It may be that they have some direct presence, some distance into uh, Diyala province of Iraq. They have used uh, the threat of ISIS, which was a real threat, to build uh, support militias uh, as, uh, as an alternative uh, to state institutions, security institutions, much more directly linked uh, to Iran, where we uh, uh, were much more influential with the security, state security forces. So, uh, and now uh, a law has been passed. Uh, there are different interpretations of, of that law uh, that institutionalizes the role of militias with regard to the Iraq future. And therefore, some are worried that this will be another kind of Hezbollah, a, a, a state within a state, but linked more directly uh, to, uh, to uh, 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 the Iranian regime. And in Afghanistan, uh, the rise of ISIS there, which is not as, as significant at this point as ISIS has been in Syria and in Iraq, uh, this has uh, uh, produced some adjustment in uh, uh, Iranian policy that has been disturbing to the government where they are reaching out to the Taliban and there has been contact. In fact, uh, Mullah Mansour, the leader of the Taliban that we killed in the Pakistani Balochistan that allegedly uh, was on his way back from Iran uh, when, when, when he was killed. And like Russia uh, and maybe some others who see the ISIS threat, uh, as the most serious threat, Iran has adjusted to use maybe uh, 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 ties with the Taliban or elements of the Taliban, because the Taliban is really an umbrella organization with various uh, elements in it, to fight uh, and contain uh, 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 ISIS. So the agenda has, has adjusted. I would say f uh, that uh, in the case of uh, of uh, Syria and Iraq, Iranian role is more significant uh, than in the case of Afghanistan. And the settlement ultimately of these two countries would require uh, Iranian acquiescence, if not direct support. And that settlement, uh, 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 we can talk about the details of what situ the situation on the ground. Uh, in order for it to work, it has to be obviously more broadly accepted in the region, and obviously now by Russia and perhaps some uh, ourselves and some others. And I think that the, the, uh, a few points, and I'll end with that. Uh, I may have taken a lot of time already. One is that uh, the same principles uh, have to apply to both countries uh, in terms of political settlement, in the sense that the civil wars of these two countries are interlinked now. And because it has become in part sectarian, in part ethnic, and because smaller identities such as ethnicity, sectarian identity have become very politicized, how do you accommodate uh, this in a context where there is also regional polarization? And, 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 and so if a majority community uh, is, uh, 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 it's a, the principle could be is as dominant power, uh, in the case of Iraq, the constitution gave power to the prime minister through parliament. Uh, it's a parliamentary system. And the Shia uh, voted for their identity during the early period. The hope is that over time they will become issue-oriented. But in the initial phase, it was identity politics. The prime minister 
has been a Shia since the uh, overthrow of Saddam. And that's the most powerful position, is the commander-in-chief of the army and what have you. But then, how do you accommodate the other communities, which, where identity is also politicized, issue orientation is there, but not as strong as identity politics, uh, is uh, uh, to have uh, federalism or confederal arrangements. Uh, 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 and the Kurds pushed for that uh, in the case of Iraq and got it. And uh, uh, in the case of Sunnis, they were initially opposed. And now there is a, a lot of support in the Sunni Arab community, which felt the country belonged to them. And they were in favor of a very strong center. That they thought they would dominate or dominate again. They, uh, they initially were very much against uh, uh, federalism. But now, uh, that has changed, and, and I think that for the Turks and, and, and for uh, Saudis and others to accept a settlement in Syria, it must reflect a similar uh, a proposition uh, where the Sunnis are the majority, and the, I think the challenge for diplomats, uh, Russian, American, whomever wants to play a positive role is, how do you uh, arrange that where you could have uh, um, given the power balance in which the Sunnis are not in a strong position, that is in part the trick, uh, that you have an arrangement where you have a weak presidency, perhaps potentially a stronger uh, parliamentary prime minister, autonomy for the various communities who are fearful of each other at this point because of nostalgia in part, revenge in part, uh, that you can have an arrangement uh, with international support where Alawites can run uh, uh, their own uh, affairs, uh, maybe some of the Sunnis and Kurds similarly. And, and I think uh, uh, the, 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 there are lessons to be learned from the Iraqi experience. That, that does not mean, as the case of Iraq demonstrates, that this is going to be easy, quick, and you will get a peaceful outcome right away. You know, these processes take many generations uh, to, to uh, work themselves out. Uh, the sense of time is different. Uh, the, the hold of history is much stronger. Uh, nostalgia is powerful. Revenge is very powerful. Uh, local interferences of regional players are there. Uh, they have their own agendas, not the same necessarily of the local players. But I think uh, that, that seems like a, like a sensible uh, kind of objective for us to also embrace for the new administration. And maybe we can to get working with others, uh, we can, we can, we can uh, make progress. But uh, Iran's role will be significant in both cases and cannot be ignored. Good. Um, I want you to know that when he was at the UN, <coughs> we were giving a going away party for um, Javad Zarif, who was then ambassador to the UN. And he was leaving, and, and Zal was then the US ambassador. And we were giving a going away party. We were having, having Kissinger for the event. And um, I was walking on the street, and I said to Zal, I saw him. And I said, would you come to, to dinner with Henry and, and uh, with Javad Zarif, of course, whom he'd known during the early years. And he came, representing the Bush administration. Nobody ever said anything until now that it actually happened. Um, Thank you for that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, Marcel, thank you for coming. We have uh, we have not known each other before. Uh, she's head of the Arab Gulf Institute, uh, States Gulf Institute, and I I, um, I know your career 
And by the way, you were an honorary. Career. I was honored, very much You're so. Honorary it was a great honor. Yes, honorary indeed. Yes, yes. Um, and I know you you know that region very well. And here we are. The, the answer to the question, what effect <coughs> did this agreement have, which is the theme around which the symposium is organized, <coughs> seems to me uh, that it did um, intensify the concern in the Gulf states about what the relationship would be with Iran. And it, it coincided with a, a slipping of the relationship in any case because of oil and so many other things. <clears throat> but how do you uh, evaluate uh, where we are with the Gulf states? Uh, um, where uh, the United States might position its, its policies and uh, the degree to which the Gulf states might play a constructive role in the Syria-Iraq set of issues. Well, thank you very much for the invitation, first of all, and thanks to Barbara and the Atlantic Council for allowing me to join this distinguished panel. Zal and I, I was in Abu Dhabi, he was in Kabul, and Dan was my boss in Cairo, so I'm in great company here. <laughs> Um, at the Arab Gulf States Institute, all we think about is the impact of uh, all the regional conflicts on the, the countries of the GCC. So as you can imagine, obviously Iran is very much central to that conversation. And anything we do, whether we're looking at Syria or Iraq or uh, the sectarian issues or the Saudi-Iranian uh, uh, political co you know, confrontation and competition in the region, which has been going on for a very long time. So the impact on the agreement, obviously, the, uh, most of the Arab Gulf states, and all of you know, they don't all hold to the same line. There are many differences in how they perceive their role in the region. Oman, for example, is, has a very different perspective on Iran than the other uh, GCC countries. But for the most part, obviously, during the interim agreement and the final negotiations, they, they pushed back on the agreement because they felt it was extremely narrow uh, just looking at the no nuclear uh, portion, and ignored the parts of the, of, the, of the region that they felt very serious and very concerned about, obviously the role that Iran plays in the region. Um, I think now with the agreement well behind us, I have not heard any um, person in, in a position of influence or authority in any of the GCC countries who would be advocating for the abrogation of the treaty, uh, of the agreement, excuse me. Uh, I think all of them would see that as a huge mistake, and it would, in their view, uh, certainly strengthen the hardliners in Iran and not uh, the people that we hope will be more influential in years to come. That said, I think the agreement for, uh, for the region, uh, in many ways, has empowered Iran further. I don't think any of us would disagree with that when we see Iran's growing role in Syria, uh, its relationship with uh, Russia, and working together hand in hand with Hezbollah. Uh, certainly the message to the region is that uh, you can't solve Syria without us. Uh, you can't solve Iraq without us. And now Yemen, you can't solve without us. So um, the impact of the agreement for the Arab Gulf states, it certainly took away or delayed uh, Iran as a nuclear power, but in every other way, it took it out of the box and it's become a you know, much more influential, much more uh, of a player that they have to contend with. So um, in terms of where we are today, I think, uh, I think the situation in Syria and probably the incoming 
uh, of the Trump administration are probably playing a constructive role in that the region is waking up for different reasons and thinking about why they have to talk. I think from the, the Arab side and the Saudi side in particular, the fall of Aleppo was huge. Uh, I think it's a wake-up call. You're not going to solve Syria without uh, uh, talking to Iran. Uh, on the other hand, I think the Iranians are concerned. But, uh, am I understanding what you said? You said the Saudis are now realizing after the fall of Aleppo that they can't move forward without talking to Iran? I think they see, they see the importance of at least responding to many of the, the comments out of Iran about reaching out and so on. The fact that the Kuwaiti foreign minister went supposedly with a GCC letter uh, to Iran. I think, I think both sides have reasons to move towards a more conciliatory uh, rapprochement attitude. On the Iranian side, I think they feel that uh, they're very concerned about the Trump uh, administration. Uh, I think they heard Mattis very clearly. Yes, the, the, we're, we're not sure how much influence Mattis will have, but certainly he said a lot of things that the Arabs want to hear about uh, Iran's rule be, uh, role in the region being extremely troubling and a, th a greater threat than, than anything else in the region. So I think Iran has reasons to, to think in a more conciliatory uh, way, and so do the Arabs. So, We've seen a few other signs I can point to very quickly. One, the OPEC oil uh, production agreement was uh, a small sign. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the fact that uh, Morocco uh, has reestablished full diplomatic relations with Iran. Certainly, I don't think the Moroccans would have done that without a green light from the UAE and Saudi Arabia. So that's kind of another sign that uh, things are, are softening a little bit. Um, I think, honestly, uh, the, the next, I mean, really, this first year of the Trump administration will give us more signs as to whether there's hope for a more, um, at least a talking relationship rather than the one we're seeing in the region right now, where um, it's, it's the worst it's ever been, in my view, in terms of that. How would you think the Saudis, what kind of role do you see them playing for themselves, particularly in Syria? What might be their role? Well, I mean, the, the Saudis and the Qataris, uh, less so the Emiratis and, uh, and Kuwait, the Saudis and the Qataris have been so insistent on the removal of Bashar al-Assad. And I think given the Russian involvement in Syria and, and uh, obviously close coordination with Iran and the fall of Aleppo, that seems to be farther away. That's not going to happen, and I think that's obvious to the Saudis. It may be something they, they want to see as a potential uh, you know, political agreement that would eventually lead to a change of, of, uh, of Bashar al-Assad. But for now, I think this, the Saudis are, are realizing that their primary goal in Syria is not going to be realized right away. And that's why I think the events in Syria are a bit of a motivation, if you will, hmm. to, to be more conciliatory towards Iran. Well, I hope after you get through with your original presentations, we, we will talk a little bit about this Russian plan that has just been announced, yeah. which involves a new constitution drafted by the Russians and the Iranians and the, and the, and the Turks with a footnote on the Kurds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Dan um, is probably the most uh, even-handed, knowledgeable, and professional uh, policy person on 
on Israel, Israel-Palestine, Egypt, and that network, which is really different than what we've been talking about. And uh, he was ambassador to both Israel and Egypt, uh, teaches at Princeton, uh, writes books about these things. So give us a short version of what your new book will be on this. <laughs> a short version of Netanyahu, let's see. <laughs> First of all, uh, I join everyone in, in really con thanking and congratulating both you, Bill, and the Iran Project, and you, Barbara, and Atlanta Council for the extraordinary work that you did to help make this happen. Uh, so uh, really, uh, yeah. hats off to you. Um, one you, were, you were in the middle of our whole effort. You never, uh, a little you were bit, a part of it. A little know? bit. Um, one comment first, if I might, on something Marcel just said. I, I hope she's right that uh, the Saudi attitude towards uh, dealing with Iran on this issue is softening. I'm not sure. Uh, I spent the last three and a half years chairing the US side of a track two with Russia on Syria, where <coughs> we had much more agreement between the United States and Russia than we could get on the idea of bringing Iran and Saudi Arabia into that dialogue. Mm -hmm. Um, so if there is some softening, if we're seeing some signs, that would be most, uh, most welcome. <laughs> Look, I, I don't have to remind uh, everyone here that uh, probably the most implacable foe of the uh, JCPOA uh, was the Israeli government, um, and specifically Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, and uh, his opposition uh, remains as firm today as it, as it was uh, before the accord uh, came into being. Um, it's also important to note, though, that if you strip away uh, the Israeli tactics that uh, some of us found a bit unusual, uh, <laughs> going behind the president's back to Congress and so forth, and if you strip away some of the language that was used that in, in our parlance we would say was just plain nasty, uh, the fact of the matter is that Israel has unique security concerns, uh, and all of them have an Iranian component in them. Uh, in the big picture, it's the idea that Iran uh, might, in fact, uh, make a political decision to acquire uh, nuclear weapons uh, capability, uh, might actually develop um, a ballistic missile uh, capability that is uh, precise and you have had, not in the current government, but you have had in previous Iranian governments, people who are willing to speak openly about wiping the state of Israel off the map, um, which in the particular context of Israel evokes um, not just a thought, but a historical reality that uh, was faced by the Jewish people 70 years ago. Um, that's in the large picture. But as you look around at Israel's other security concerns, the Iranians pop up almost everywhere. Um, and I'm thinking most particularly in Syria, uh, the Iranian role, uh, not just in propping up Bashar al-Assad, but in uh, sending Iranian forces, uh, IRGC and others, uh, to fight and to die and to uh, displace uh, Sunni Syrians in order to create a kind of Iranian buffer around Damascus. Um, you have an Iranian role in uh, keeping Hezbollah well-armed, and perhaps uh, the Israelis would fear 
in helping Hezbollah create a second front, not just along Israel's northern border, but along the Golan Heights line. And so as you, as you look at this regional uh, context, uh, security context, uh, Iran is not a, uh, a single problem. It is a multiple complex problem that Israeli decision makers face. And uh, in some ways, it does account for the very often uh, hyperbolic uh, way in which Israel talks about Iran. Uh, and the concerns that uh, uh, at least the Israeli government expresses. That said, as we saw during the JCPOA negotiations themselves, and we've seen now even more publicly, there has been and remains a split between what I call the political decision makers in Israel and a large part of the security establishment. It was mentioned a little bit earlier in the first panel. Uh, I don't want to make it a binary because uh, obviously there are large parts of the security establishment whose job it is to protect the state of Israel who are very worried about Iran. But there's also a large part of that establishment, including former officials who are prepared to speak publicly, who make the argument that we may not have wanted the way the, C the JCPOA came out. We would have wanted a tougher agreement or whatever. But it's not bad. And as we heard in the earlier panel, it's kind of working with all of its uh, weaknesses and problems. Uh, secondly, um, these folks argue, the way to get the United States to pay more attention to Iranian behavior that's not included in the agreement, which is everything else, uh, support for terrorism, what it's doing in uh, destabilizing or uh, undermining other governments and so forth, human rights, is not to fight the United States government, as uh, happened in the Obama administration, but to try to work with the United States government. Now, we're going to have a way of testing this proposition in a few weeks, because the Prime Minister of Israel is going to be an early visitor uh, to uh, Washington. We don't know much of what has happened in the phone calls that have taken place. But the, the prospect is, I would think, fairly high the Prime Minister will come in with a very ambitious agenda, both on Iran, but also on issues closer to home, uh, which are not part of today's agenda. But just to mention them, uh, this whole complex of issues of whether the United States will uh, move its embassy to Jerusalem, recognize something in Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, uh, our attitude towards Israeli settlements. You recall last week, Israel made some announcements and the White House spokesman was quiet, didn't really condemn or comment on it, uh, or even uh, the question of potentially uh, Israel's annexing parts of the West Bank. Unlikely that they would seek to annex all of the West Bank, but there's been talk of annexing some of the big blocks or to start with some areas in Area C. Uh, and we're going to be faced in the next few days with the fourth issue in this other complex which is how the United States reacts to what looks like Israeli legislation that would retroactively legalize settlement outposts that are not only illegal under international law, but are illegal up until now under Israeli law. And they're about to be magically, you know, the dust will be thrown on them and they'll become legal. Um, so Netanyahu is going to have that uh, on his mind. Um, Already, the Israeli government on these issues seems to be dipping its toe in the water. 
Uh, it's quote unquote gotten away with the announcement of more settlement activity. No reaction that I saw today on Netanyahu's uh, announcement that he's going to move forward with the uh, retroactive legalization bill. So it seems that they can take these, these uh, baby steps towards uh, what they really would like is American support for increasing control over uh, the West Bank, legal control. There's the second big issue, which is Iran. And I, I don't think, frankly, that Netanyahu is going to walk into Washington and ask for abrogation of the accord. Uh, but rather, to do the kinds of things that the Israelis have talked about, um, even those that have not particularly liked the accord, as well as those who have, they've talked about now for a few years uh, during repeated visits that I've made and discussions with them. Number one is, um, what is it that the United States will do when there is a major breach of the agreement? Israel wants to know and would like to have some kind of a, an assurance that the United States will react, uh, not with just, just with words, but also with actions. If there is a major breach of the agreement, which is clear, uh, uncontestable in terms of the P5 plus one, but is not remedied by uh, the Iranian authorities. Uh, number two, uh, the Israelis will, Netanyahu will uh, expect some uh, reiteration of the idea that a military force uh, has not been taken off the table. The two, number one and number two are connected, but uh, they're also separable. Uh, you recall that Netanyahu had trouble within his own government in gaining support for the idea of military action clearly had trouble gaining support from the United States. He wants to know whether Trump's ready to say the words. And um, the impact that that will have on the ears of the Iranians listening to it. Number three, um, there are tangible uh, issues that Netanyahu will uh, hope to get. Uh, for example, the Obama administration negotiated a $38 billion 10-year aid program, um, which some Republicans, even during the Obama administration, argued was uh, insufficient and which had provisions <laughs> in it that uh, took away some of the benefits that Israel had enjoyed over the years, such as about 26% or 25% of our aid being able to be used in Israel to bolster its uh, uh, defense industries. Uh, so Netanyahu, I, I'm, I would be pretty sure is going to talk about reopening uh, or opening that 10-year uh, accord and finding ways to uh, improve it from, uh, from Israel's perspective uh, so that not only would, for example, the defense aid come back in, the, the aid for Israeli defense industries come back in, but uh, there would be assurances that uh, additional support for missile defense, Israeli missile defense, would be additive to whatever number is agreed upon over 10 years, rather than incorporated in the 38 billion, which is the way it's defined today. So the Israeli uh, uh, attitude, I think, is going to be, in a way, transactional, rather than um, ideological or political. Yes, Netanyahu will say all the things that he has said about how horrible Iran is and how horrible the agreement is. But behind closed doors, uh, he's going to try to make a deal, I believe, with the president and come out uh, probably pretty well satisfied. If I can offer one comment on Egypt, um, 
is that something? We okay? were hoping. Yeah, we yeah. Should, yeah. Um, you know, the, the Egyptian attitude towards this um, has always been uh, much more challenging to understand. The Egyptians uh, have had a very longstanding um, uh, distaste, even hatred, of the Iranians for reasons that have to do, uh, number one, in terms of regional um, co uh, competition, but also uh, when you talk to Egyptians, they remember um, Iran's attitude towards the assassination of their president back in 1981. And I heard consistently, 20 years later, serving in Cairo, you know, we will never truly be friends with the Iranians while a main street in Tehran is named after Khalid Islambouli who was the assassin of President Sadat. Uh, symbolic, perhaps, but it really cuts uh, deeply into the psychological uh, being of, uh, of many Egyptians, including uh, at, at the top of the, uh, the top echelons. Number two, uh, the Egyptians have been staunch defenders of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, and in this respect, their target has always been Israel uh, as a non-member of the Non-Proliferation Treaty and as a, an undeclared nuclear uh, power. Uh, and so the Iranian uh, nuclear issue uh, always seemed to the Egyptians to be almost of secondary importance. Iran's far away. Egypt was not going to really be a target of Iranian aggression. Um, but the Egyptians were always, over these past few years, trying to get the world also to focus on the Israeli program, as they've done in each NPT review conference since the mm -hmm. treaty was, was established. Um, so that accounts in part for the fact that uh, Egypt has basically been silent uh, over the agreement, letting uh, the Saudis and the Gulf states take the lead, hoping to get some tangible benefits uh, in terms of increased security assistance. Um, and uh, I think this would also account for the fact that President Sisi has been an early uh, at least public supporter of President Trump. Again, a transactional view on the part of a country that doesn't have an ideological opposition to the Iranian nuclear program, even though it has an ideological view about Iran, per se. Good, great. Let me ask one little question of you two. The, um, there's been sort of a subliminal alliance that has evolved between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Iran and Saudi Arabia? Uh, over, Israel, 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 Israel. I mean, Israel, Israel sorry. Right. I'm sorry, against Iran, because right. of Iran. Mm -hmm. um, and um, is, that, is that a reality? In, are they functioning that way? Are they, is that? Well, it, it, look, uh, below the surface, it's, it's even better than subliminal. It's, right. uh, it's happening. There's a lot of cooperation underway between Israel and most of the Arab world that used to be off limits. Right. Um, how, how big a factor is Iran? Opposition, huge. mutual opposition to Iran. Is that a? I tell you, that's huge. True. Uh, uh, I was uh, in Saudi Arabia a few weeks ago, uh, and uh, uh, all the leaders, uh, especially the deputy crown prince, uh, was saying, and with the military people in the room, that they don't regard Israel as a threat, and they have no plans uh, in that regard, uh, and their planning doesn't focus on 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 Israel, and it is largely because of Iran and the threat that Iran poses. Uh, one effect of perhaps the neglect, some would say, or a bit of disengagement or uh, lack of adequate support to allies by the Obama administration has been that it has affected 
the regionals may be coming together more like Israel and some of the Arab states who shared similar threat perception. But how, how would that, that play out? Effect. Let's say he does make the decision to move the American embassy to Jerusalem and the prediction is that violence would break out. Would, uh, would the governments of, of the Arab countries want to repress that or would it be basically coming from ISIS and others? You know, Bill, what's interesting is mm -hmm. um, you, you didn't hear me mention that Netanyahu was going to bring that up. Right. Um, when he's asked publicly, as he was yesterday, mm -hmm. he will say, of course, we want the American embassy to be in Jerusalem, and members of his cabinet will say so. But um, he will understand, as much as anybody, that the argument that he wants to make to Trump, which is that, in a sense, Israel becomes a pathway to relations with countries that are upset with the United States, like Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. um, can get undermined by a move of the American like embassy yeah. mm -hmm. to which Saudi Arabia would have to react because right. of the Arab street. They'd have right. no choice. Right. Yeah. And I think uh, Netanyahu understands that very well. Let, let me ask one more question before we go to the audience. Um, uh, there was an agreement, uh, sort of the beginning of an agreement announced yesterday <coughs> that Russia issued uh, after their meetings with Turkey and, and Iran and, and uh, some, other, some of the opposition forces, not all of them by any means, in Syria, uh, on Syria, which included the draft of a new constitution. And the new constitution would include uh, a great deal of, as, as I'll said, a confederation, a, a great deal of decentralization. And of course, a key issue is that Russia has in there a, a, a sort of semi-autonomous Kurdish uh, element uh, in Syria. Um, do you think that it seems likely to you that uh, Russia, uh, Iran, and Turkey, if they could ever sort some of these things out, could carry forward the UN mandate on trying to find a long-term solution to Syria uh, without us? Well, I mean, it's. I think that's unlikely, uh, but I don't think we would have a problem with a formula along the lines that uh, you have described, although I haven't read the, uh, the details of it. But the, uh, the key challenge would be whether you can get the Turks to agree uh, the, uh, that uh, autonomous Kurdish region that could be dominated by PYD, which is uh, the dominant party there, which mm -hmm. they regard as tied to PKK, uh, would be acceptable. Uh, now, uh, you know, the Turks were not that happy with the federalism in Iraq, but they accommodated over time. And now relations between the Kurdish region of Iraq, the dominant party, the KDP, and Turkey is quite close, and it's a mutually beneficial relationship. Uh, but uh, it seems to me that PYD's PKK connection makes it a little harder uh, to sell. Uh, but, uh, but there will be huge progress uh, if uh, this, there is this agreement, and we, there is something that we could work with, in my view. The key issue for us, the urgent issue, is what you do about ISIS. And uh, I think that. Uh, uh, for us, this political settlement is a more longer-term uh, issue. The ISIS is the, the, the urgent issue, and I, I suspect 
we could get uh, progress with the Russians on this, uh, perhaps, and, and then we can bring, the, uh, bring others along. But I think without us, it will be difficult, if we especially oppose it. And I think I haven't seen it either, yeah. uh, the, this draft constitution. And if they take it to Geneva, that would be yeah. a sign that they want they to take broaden it to the, UN. the base of, of support. But without bringing on certainly Saudi Arabia's acquiescence, right. there's just that's what no I, that's way. That's the question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I they don't that, come into it, this would be, it's going to go nowhere. Yeah. Yeah, they well, can, and they're not even They can the keep table. Syria you know, exactly. in a civil war status. And I don't know whether, sorry, uh, that the Turks would go as far as they if they have gone, uh, and I, I, I'm not sure no, that yeah. they have, without talking to the Saudis. So. Yeah, good. Yeah. And I would yeah. add, uh, even in the Obama administration, there were clear signals in the last few months of a willingness to accept the Russian dominant role if Russia would then join in the anti-ISIS right. anti coalition. Right. They're, they're linked. Yeah. 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 They're linked. Yeah. 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 So in terms well, of your question, I think if, if the Russians are able to pull this off, which is a, a real outside possibility right. because it's not just the Kurds and Turkey, and it's not just the regime and the Kurds and Turkey, but it's the regime, Kurds, Turkey, Iran, Saudi Arabia, right. and exactly. that becomes. And, and we would, if you're able to pull it off, and then we brought uh, about an agreement with Russia dealing with ISIS, I think Washington would be very happy. Right. Good. Well, this has gone on, but I, I hope you all benefited from their wisdom. Any, any questions? Yes? You'll get, you'll get a microphone at some point. Thank you. I'm Ali Dodd Mafinez. I'm with the West Asia Council. My question has to do with the way you see the potential for the Trump administration to bring about a paradigm shift in a region of the world which for the past quarter century has gone from bad to worse with millions of refugees, a terrorism problem that has now affected Europe and is undermining the integrity of the European Union. And so I wonder whether we could envision a fundamental paradigm shift in the role of the United States and its leadership in that region that would bring about a different outcome altogether. Thank you. Let, let me tell you, what, what paradigm shift do you want? <laughs> uh, a cessation of uh, forever war, for example, hey, and uh, a pr and a way of dealing with the refugee crisis, which is undermining international stability. Hmm. Well, I don't know. Okay. Well, uh, I would say that ambitious paradigm shift in the past, some would say, have not produced uh, uh, <laughs> a, a very uh, big positive results. So my uh, my. Judgment is that the administration is uh, likely to focus sharply on how it defines uh, primary American interests and to go and protecting those. And ISIS being ISIS first. being at the top, uh, security of Israel uh, being at the top. Uh, maybe uh, uh, some strengthening of relations with uh, friends and allies and some ad additional pressure to push back on Iranian kind of uh, th threats. Uh, uh, but not to go uh, with a, a big American kind of grand design uh, to, to normalize this region uh, uh, and reshape it uh, after its own image. Uh, uh, that, will be, that will be my, uh, my judgment uh, uh, based on 
what one hears uh, from the senior people who are in the administration. You? I, I would only add that I think um, the perception of disengagement in the last, certainly in the second uh, term of the Obama administration, I think it, what we're going, and I have no way of knowing uh, what the Trump administration is going to do in the region, but my guess is that there's not going to be more engagement. I think that was the, if you look at the issue from purely American national interests, I don't see the U.S. Uh, returning to you know the, the level of engagement Iraq or pre-Iraq days. So I think we're going to see an increase um, in regional players mm -hmm. uh, either becoming more coordinated, although I'm never very optimistic on that front, but certainly taking uh, decisions into their own hands. And we've seen that already, I think, mm -hmm. over the last few years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think you will see Russia uh, more engaged. And I think they, the regional players, are now looking at Russia. They're looking at China. They're strengthening relations with India. I think they've seen the writing on the wall that the US, even with this new administration, is going to be more of a, um, you know, taking a bit of a isolationist view and not getting involved in a big way. I don't know if Dan Yeah, I would, I would just add one point, which mm -hmm. um, in a way, the executive order this weekend identified this administration's axis of evil. You have seven countries that have now been identified as, as the countries that we are not going to want to deal with. Um, Saudi Arabia was not on that list. Egypt was not on that list. So at best, I think you're going to find an administration that wants to do some repair work, put some Band-Aids on the bilateral relationships with the countries that felt alienated over the past few years of the Obama administration. But the paradigm shift that you may be thinking about of you know, getting into the kind of Marshall Plan thinking of changing the way the Middle East uh, looks at itself and, and fixes its problems, I'd be exceedingly doubtful in this administration. I, would, uh, uh, I have high regards for Dan. Uh, I wouldn't uh, use the same terminology of the axis of evil equivalent to this, uh, whatever one thinks of. Uh, that was what's called a diplomatic uh, disagreement. Yeah. Uh. In the sense that, you know, I, I, th I think we, we have, uh, uh, for example, take the case of Iraq. Uh, it's this, uh, uh, I think we have a strong relationship, defense, uh, perhaps stronger than we do with a lot of others who are not on the list. Uh, 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 F-16 pilots are being trained, F-16s are being sold. We have a very strong security relationship with, uh, with the Kurds, uh, strength getting stronger uh, uh, by the day. Uh, so I would not read uh, 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 that in that way that these are the, the worst <laughs> in terms of a threat to the U.S. from the region. It certainly um, feels that way. Well, it, I, I, know, <laughs> I, I know that maybe, uh, maybe uh, there is something that be, could be said about how it has been marketed yeah. uh, and described <laughs> and uh, in the way it has been done. But I wouldn't I would, uh, think that uh, may I, a slight... If, if only they'd give us their oil, we would be great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, we'll just go <laughs> take it. You know. This is what the man said. You know. Barbara. Uh, uh, yeah. Barbara. Our friends. Thanks, Barbara Slavin. The the visa ban, though, um, including Iraq, uh, we've seen already some commentary from Baghdad suggesting that they should they're going to throw yeah, the Americans sure. out. Is that just expected noise? They can't possibly do it because they need us. 
because of ISIS. All right, you've already had. I wanted to pass the microphone, though, to uh, Jim Loeb, who had a question. No, that was my question. That was your question. Ah, what can I say? Yeah. Journalists think alike. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he's not done yet. Do you have another one? Okay. <laughs> that was the beginning. He wants to expand the question. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> the broader implications of the visa ban, no matter how it was ruled out, uh, particularly with respect to Iraq, since we've invested so much there, and how people on the ground will take it. Sure. Um, but it's addressed to the whole panel as well. Well, if I could start, I, w I think that uh, this is a temporary ban. Uh, terrorism is a serious issue. Uh, 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 hopefully, although I have my own observations about the way it was done and w what uh, how it could have been done differently, is that it could lead to a to a, a, a reason debate that takes into account obviously our security, but also takes into account uh, the, how it affects our friends, uh, those who are fighting terrorism in the region, and how it affects the growth of terrorism or the weakening of terrorism, and our, of course our values. And I think this is uh, this has opened. Uh, a, a debate uh, that uh, hopefully a reasoned discussion can produce uh, an outcome that meets all of those uh, concerns. So, uh, I mean, I have concerns that people who helped me as ambassador to Iraq or uh, Afghanistan or helped our military I wouldn't want them to be <laughs> negatively affected, although there has been some uh, uh, already some effects. Uh, so there are issues, but I think uh, uh, that given the threat to the homeland and that terrorism is a reality, some review of whether we need to tighten and how to do it uh, in a way that uh, meets all those other criteria is, 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 is uh, uh, if, if it leads to a, a, a reason debate, uh, uh, it could, it could uh, uh, the effects in the region must be taken into account maybe more minimal if we immediately go as to what it is and what it isn't. Yeah, the question moving forward is whether yeah. or not the administration keeps shooting from the hip right. and then fixing problems right. after they've shot or whether they do some planning. I, right after 9-11, a directive came around saying special visa procedures for anyone born in Iran, Iraq, Syria, a bunch of countries. I was in Israel at the time. A large part of the Israeli population were born right. in Iran, Iraq, Iran, Iran. <laughs> all of those. And I was not allowed to give them visas, including former president, the late Yitzhak Navon. Right. So, you know, this was a case of that administration having shot from the hip, but after, you know, yeah. for, for good reason. I mean, we had right. just been attacked, as opposed to this administration, which is putting out executive orders without vetting them properly, going through legal procedures, checking with heads of department. Uh, and that's, sure. that's really the difference right. that we're talking about. Can I add one more thing very quickly? Yes, mm -hmm. I think uh, all the countries in the region understand very well the security issues. They've all suffered from terrorism. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that would not be an issue. The issue, uh, I think, from their perspective is that um, instead of uh, putting something out that increases your security by you know, doing extreme vetting, whatever that means. I think four years is vetting enough. But anyway, if you, if you want to do more vetting, 
whether they're refugees or, or visitors. visitors' visa, nobody would have objected to that. I think what's very insulting to the region is that they feel that they've been put on there primarily because they're Muslim countries, and second, because they're Muslim countries that are in conflict, which is the worst time to put that kind of restriction on them since a lot of them are trying to do family reunification and immigration. So I think the way it was done was a huge mistake if you care about what other countries think of you. If you don't, then maybe, um, as Dan says, we just correct mistakes and we go on, so. Yes, back there, no, we don't, go ahead. Yeah. Thank you. No. Uh, I'm Harlan Ullman with the Atlantic Council. I'd like to provoke and challenge the, the panel uh, this way about a paradigm shift. Could there not be an implosion in the region? Mm -hmm. And this is based on a quasi-isolationist view, what Trump may or may not want to do with Russia and concessions, that his focus in that part of the region is anti-ISIS, which means it's going to be Yemen, it's going to be Iraq and Syria, but in a very constrained way. And of course, we haven't really seen how he's going to deal with China. So I think that the possibility of the steps that Mr. Trump may take could really cause the region to implode, uh, not the opposite. And I just wanted your comments if you thought that through at all. Tell me, what, what do yeah. you mean by that sort of? Well, we've done very well with the whole refugee immigrant problem, which has really been a great plus for us, which has started things off. Um, supposing Mr. Trump does not listen to now, Mr. What, not what use. What would an implosion be in your? Uh, you have a widespread, you have a widespread uh, continuation of uh, anti-Americanism, of radicalism. You have an American quasi or American withdrawal from making the region as important in the past, so a vacuum is, is uh, made. And that the focus is going to be on anti-Islamic state activities, which is going to be more special forces and drones, which are going to exacerbate many of the tensions in the region. And how we deal with Saudi Arabia really remains to be seen, but part of this could be a withdrawal from the uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. I mean, this is a perfect storm in essence, uh, but after the last 10 days, I'm not sure it's something that should be immediately discounted <laughs> as fiction. Well, I mean, the region is very unstable. As, uh, I don't have to tell you that. So uh, you could draw these, some of these scenarios regardless of uh, the US role. But the US role, I do not, agree myself that we're going to end up exactly as you describe, although there is some uncertainty. For example, uh, if you uh, read uh, what the Secretary of Defense said in his confirmation hearing, uh, you can draw from that uh, that we're going to be in some ways more engaged uh, on missile defense, for example. He emphasized and regional, uh, regional partnerships. Uh, uh, what he said would be mu music to the ears of, as you said, to some Sorry. of the, uh, to some of our traditional allies. Uh, but uh, uh, what I was saying about the, uh, the U.S. not having a grand design to transform this region uh, uh, doesn't mean that if uh, to serve those specified U.S. interests, narrowly defined, would could be done with this engagement. You couldn't achieve those goals 
effectively without disengagement, uh, with disengagement and, with, 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 and without partnerships uh, and strong relationship and significant capabilities in the area. It, it was, uh, uh, so I, uh, I, I, sometimes we give ourselves uh, an our role more credit in shaping the region. Uh, it, it does happen occasionally, but largely what I think has happened is what my colleague here has said, which is the role of regional players have become more important. Mm -hmm. And there, uh, my, my hope is that over time, and here we can help, that Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Turkey could reach some understanding on, uh, among themselves about the future of this region with Israel, perhaps if not directly in, involved through dotted line involved as to some rules of the game and uh, mutual accommodation uh, between them. Uh, and uh, here, again, a balance of power among these players would be, would be uh, helpful, and I believe that we, we could play a role in that as well. You know, the, well, uh, the, if I just may add yeah. one point. They, what's interesting about the question is you can think of all kinds of scenarios, but in a sense, that kind of a question flows from the fact that as Marcel and Zal have been saying, this is a region where state actors have given way to either non-state actors right. or to uh, countries on the periphery, being Turkey, Iran, and Israel, effectively. Uh, Saudi Arabia as well, but uh, the three determinants of, of regional events in the future are very much going to depend on the interaction of those three countries. So um, does it Will there be an implosion in other places? There is now, mm -hmm. whether you want to count Libya, Yemen, Syria, and those kinds of things can happen. Whether or not it starts to encompass the three primary determinants of power relationships, I think is, uh, is not likely to happen uh, because they're acting, in a sense, out of more traditional balance of power interests than... Uh, right. Than not. Let's, very let's take sure. let's take one last question. You, you, Ibrahim yeah. Mohseni from University of Maryland. So, from the beginning of this session today up until now, there's been a big elephant missing in this room. Would you speak into the microphone? Yes, yeah. and that's the Iranian election coming up uh, in less than four months. Um, do we, should we have any favorites in that election? <laughs> and secondly, how do you think the visa ban as well as the uh, promised upcoming sanctions and more pressure on Iran, how do you think that will affect that election? <laughs> well, and this to is answer for your first question, we should have no candidates. Yeah. <laughs> it's sure that if we go after Rouhani, he's dead. <laughs> yeah. if, if, if Trump should do that. But uh, I don't know if you... You would. Well, Ali, what would you say? Yeah, yeah that's for the Iranian elections no, are like famously unpredictable, so I was just going to add, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's in our interest that the moderates are key players in Iran, and I think the current situation uh, is not looking good for them, uh, especially with the new administration, and they feel threatened. And I think the new sanctions will make them also more angry. And they may look at Rouhani as not having delivered. But I am not an Iran expert, and I have no idea what that could mean in an election. 
but certainly it, it, it's an area of concern. But you're not suggesting we should announce ourselves in favor of... Oh, one. God, no. <laughs> oh, kiss of death. <laughs> no. Well, okay. Well, thank you very much for staying here, and thanks, Barbara and the Atlantic Council. Uh, this is our third, and you haven't heard the last of us on, on this subject. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank the panel, the wonderful panel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.